sense the darkness within you. I will teach you the ways of the dark side, but you must prove yourself first. Master, I need your help quickly. I've ordered your reinforcements to return. No, I will destroy the Jedi. I'll show you. You have failed me for the last time, and now you shall die. Doku, he betrayed me. I know. I had hoped you would find your way to us sooner. I will have revenge. Yes, you shall, sister. You fought in the Clone Wars? Yes. I was once a Jedi Knight, the same as your father. Here we go. I have a bad feeling about this. Follow me, boys! You're not shinies anymore. Go, go, go! Hello again, everybody. Happy New Year and welcome to another episode of The Clone Wars Strikes Back. This is the podcast where we celebrate the, what is it now, six, seven year history of the Emmy award winning animated series Star Wars The Clone Wars. And I think right now this is the only Star Wars podcast not talking about The Force Awakens. I think. So if you're if you're looking to, you know, maybe take your foot off the gas for just a moment, say, you know, talk about some Star Wars that isn't in theaters, that isn't Episode 7, this is the place to do so. No judgment if you want to. No judgment if you want to keep your foot firmly on the gas and keep talking Force Awakens. That's cool, too. But if you want to talk a little Clone Wars, you are in the right place. Introductions are in order if you are new to the show. My name is Dominic, and joining me, as he always does, is my good friend and co-host, the award-winning Kieran Duggan. Good evening, all listeners. I say evening at my time, at least. I think it is evening at your time yeah. as well, Dominic. Yeah, so it's, that's e- it's evening. That's fine. Or any time for whoever's listening to this podcast, whether it's morning, day or night. It could be three in the morning, and you're out, <laughs> and, and you may have had a couple of drinks, and you just want to listen to something to make your night Maybe feel a little bit just better, finished then you a can listen crawl. to us. You've just well, finished maybe, the pub maybe crawl. Maybe this isn't the right episode star. to listen to it because this may not be the most cheery podcast or roundtable you'll ever hear in your life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> based well, on the content, I based mean. Based on the content, yeah, yeah. It's it's a uh, yeah. Well, let, let's get into it. We're discussing the first, I guess, really the first two thirds of the novel "Dark Disciple" by Christy Golden. And now this novel was based on four episodes, or wait, actually based on eight episodes. We think we've narrowed it down to the first two-thirds till four episodes, I think. Um, uh, four unproduced episodes of The Clone Wars. They were It's based on scripts that were written by Katie Lucas, and there's a wonderful uh, introduction, introduction to the novel by Katie Lucas uh, if, if you buy the hardcover. I don't, think it, I don't think it's out in paperback just yet. Uh, but the episodes that it was based on were Lethal Alliance, The Mission, Conspirators, and aptly titled dark disciple and so we're going to talk about this is the first 192 pages 
or the first, let me just open up my book here, first 25 chapters of the book. Uh, and then we're going to, because the way we do things here, we go in chronological order. We're going to take a break on the next show and talk about the Son of Dathomir comics, uh, which were which were released by Dark Horse uh, at the end of 2014. It was one of the last uh, releases from Dar- one of the last Star Wars releases from Dark Horse Comics. And then we'll come back and finish out the novel with the last uh, about a hundred pages or so dealing with the second arc. Now this is. Like I said, this is based on a guess uh, of where we see where we think the arc would have ended naturally. Uh, you know, Christy Golden. I, I interviewed Christy Golden on the Star Wars Underworld podcast back when the book came out, and she did talk about you know moving some stuff around in the book uh, compared to how it was done in the scripts, just because it made better sense as a novel. Uh, so again, some some things may have changed. But basically, we I, I feel that the scene, the last scene from chapter 25, which is Ventress meeting Obi-Wan at the bar and telling him that Voss is gone or that Voss is now a dark disciple of Count Dooku was an appropriate or that felt like the ending to an arc. And then where things pick up in chapter 26, it does kind of feel like some time has passed, like there's been a season in between, if you know what I mean. I I completely agree with your interpretation there Dominic and it, yeah it's always going to be a bit of a, a struggle in it and a different type of uh, I guess analysis in, in terms of uh, what we're actually looking at here mm-hmm. than we're used to we're so used to watching Clone Wars on the television uh-huh. yeah. or um, you know watching uh, unfinished animation content but we've never really discussed sat down um and sat down and discussed and analyzed the book so this would be new ground for us but in a way i was actually looking forward to this i don't know about you Dominic, oh, yeah. because i think the the good thing of a book is that it's quite easy to to go back to a page or find a quote um and or highlight something um and you know kind of reread it then sometimes it is to look at it on the television because particularly with something like the Clone Wars, the visual animation quality is so good that sometimes it can be a bit of a distraction to whether it's the dialogue that a character is speaking about or um, whether it's something else that's going on that you should be watching out for. And so with the book, it's good because you really, what I think is so uh, good about this book is the ability to really get into the mindset of characters. And we're not just seeing them from the perspective of a viewer by hearing what they say, but in the, in the book, we actually get to sit down and, and really read what their thoughts are. And yeah. sometimes, as we see in this book here, the thoughts of our characters don't always match the actions or dialogue our characters actually say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that this book did a really good job, especially with uh, Quinlan Voss's thoughts and how it wasn't like he turned to the dark side just on a dime. There was a natural progression of the way he was thinking about life, thinking about the universe, thinking about his mission, where to the point where you can completely understand that sudden turn that may not have come across as well in 
the TV show had these episodes actually been produced. Now, there's lots of stuff in these episodes I would have loved to have seen. Uh, all the lightsaber fights sound fantastic. Uh, it, it, they're some of the cool training stuff, some, some really, really great moments in the book that would have made wonderful, wonderful action sequences. And we saw some of them in animatic form at Celebration. Uh, and you can see them on the official Star Wars YouTube channel. But for the most part, it's, you know, it, it what this book does really, really well and why I'm, I'm kind of glad we got these stories as a book is it really shows us how someone like Quinlan Voss could turn to the dark side. Someone who, you know, we always look at Anakin as like a unique case. And he is, in a way he is. But we look at his circumstances and, and all that, and it's very different from what most Jedi go through. Whereas Voss, they make a, a very it's very clear in the novel that he was raised at the temple. He is a, a child of the Jedi temple. And so even someone who was indoctrinated with this stuff at such a young age, the fact that he was able to fall, I feel like a novel was able to portray that possibly better than the TV show could have. Now that's without having seen these episodes produced. Uh, it's not, I don't know if it's fair to, to necessarily make that judgment, but I, I all that to say, I thought this story lent itself very, very well to a novel. I completely agree with that sentiment and I look forward to dissecting it with you, Dominic. As yes. This yes. is, if it was, if, sorry, if this book was released in kind of a Clone Wars television episode format, I think these would be some of the best episodes oh, absolutely. on the yeah. TV series, in my personal opinion. And although there is a lot of, there are a lot of character moments in this book. There is also a lot of, uh, how can I say this? There are a lot of action sequences here. There's a lot of lightsaber fights, and 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 um, you know, there's there's a lot there that would really be great to kind of view on a visual stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But let's get into this. Let's do this the way we always have, just because. Uh, the medium that the story is being told in doesn't mean our format for discussion will change. So, and I probably should have asked you this before we started the show, but Kieran, do you have episode descriptions for us this week? Or should I say a novel description for us this week? <laughs> I do indeed. All Doc. right. <laughs> and we'll start off with the Jedi Council feels it has no choice but to take drastic action to target the man responsible for so many war atrocities, Count Dooku himself. The council makes the bold decision to bring both sides of the force, force's power to bear, pairing brash Jedi Knight Quinlan Voss with infamous one-time Sith acolyte Asajj Ventress. Though Jedi distrust for the cunning killer who once served at Dooku's side still runs deep, Ventress's hatred for her former master runs deeper. She's more than willing to lend her copious talents as a bounty hunter and assassin to Voss's quest. Together, Ventress and Voss are the best hope for eliminating Dooku, as long as the emerging feelings between them don't compromise their mission. Ventress is determined to have her retribution and at last let go of her dark Sith past, Balancing the complicated emotions she feels for Voss 
With the fury of her warrior spirit, she, she resolves to claim victory on all fronts, a vow that will be mercilessly tested, mercilessly tested by her deadly enemy and her own doubt. Ooh, very nice, very nice. So, let's get into it. Uh, had you read the novel before we, uh, before uh, we were doing the show? Had you read? Was this your first time? I had. Reading? I had okay. read it before. Yeah, the show. yeah. Me too. Me too. So, you know, when reviewing the novel, knowing how it's going to end, does that change, or did had that has that changed your perspective on this first half of the book? I would say so. And I, I feel that any time you read or you watch or you hear something for the second time, you always get a different interpretation or, or a different slant on, on how you viewed it the first time. And I feel that with this novel, Dark Disciple, you go into this novel uh, the second time around and you kind of see the tragedy unfold and it does hit you emotionally because it's a very, very tragic story to be honest. And I mean, for people who, who love reading material that is concentrated on the dark side, then this really is a novel for you because it takes you to dark, dark places. And whilst it's not quite the same as a novel akin to Darth Plagueis, wherein I feel in that novel you really concentrated on the Sith, uh, and particularly the the rule of two and the main two there, um, and you know, Dooku as the apprentice, whenever we then look at uh, kind of the Sith acolytes or the, uh, the dark disciples uh, of the Sith, um, we always have to look at it from a lower level. But this is just a fantastic storyline but uh, emotionally i feel you really do get invested into these characters and there is just this this as i said i have to highlight the word again tragic element to the storyline when you know that going into this novel character like assange ventress um kind of transforms her story arc has been one of the most entertaining uh one of the most dynamic storylines in out of any of the star wars characters and you're teaming up with someone like quinlan Vos, who has a has a reputation built on him but we haven't really seen a lot or necessarily read a lot about his character um particularly now that the the eu has become legends mm-hmm. uh, we've only really got that episode on the clone wars and his and his brief appearance in episode one if you could even call it that yeah and <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> yes he's kind of just sitting there in episode one at a table or re- at a restaurant watching um, jar jar get beat up by uh Sebulba. like come on man qui-gon qui-gon stood up for jar jar he should at least step in there yeah, I mean, it, I imagine that could be a storyline somewhere there where you're thinking, why is Quinlan Voss there? And why didn't he say hello to Qui-Gon Jinn? Well, I mean, to be honest... Yeah, they're under, he's undercover, I mean. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, it sounds dark, but when you look at the type of missions that Quinlan Voss gets in, and we'll get onto his character in a bit, no doubt, um, oh, yeah. it, it's not surprising that we see him there in episode one and, and having no real reaction to the fact that a fellow Jedi Master in Qui-Gon Jinn is literally right beside him. 
but overall, as you said, did I get it? Well, you asked the question, did I get uh, a diff- different impression of this novel from reading it a second time? I certainly did. And it, it certainly was a... No, I wouldn't say it was harder to read, but it was just... Uh, it was more saddened. I felt mm-hmm. saddened to read it again because I, I knew what was going to happen at the end. And um, without doing any spoilers for, say, another show, The Game of Thrones, but everyone talks about The Red Wedding, I have similar sentiments with regards to watching uh, that particular episode again when you know how bad things are going to get. And, and in this novel, things do get very, very bad. Yeah. But I'll throw it over to you, Dominic. Have, have your thoughts on this novel changed since it was first released not too long not ago. Not too long ago, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll start by saying this. I'm a huge fan of this novel. This is my favorite uh, of any of the uh, non-filmic uh, new canon. So basic, so the books, the comics, uh, anything that isn't a uh, TV show or uh, movie, obviously. This is my favorite of the, of the novels and the comics, all that. Uh, so I really like this. I've even got a poster from of the book books cover from uh celebration i've still got it up on my wall here uh where where i'm recording and i've got my copy of the book signed like i i'm i'm all about this novel i absolutely adore this book and rereading it again was it was really great to get back into the story and i mean it's so well written like it really is you talk about a page turner it really you know it really keeps your attention there's no points where you're kind of you know, where it loses your attention, you're looking away going, oh, I wonder wonder what else I could be doing. Uh, it really holds your attention and it, and it really holds up on a second reading. And I think you, uh, you were kind of getting at this point. It, it's almost tragic reading it again because the first time you don't know where it's going. You don't know what's going to happen. You assume that, that Dooku is going to survive. Well, Dooku obviously has to survive. But it's, you know, how close are they going to get? It, it's almost like that movie um, from a couple of years ago, uh, Valkyrie, where they, you know, it's a, a plot to kill Hitler. You know, obviously they're not going to succeed, but, you know, the question is how close do they get and what are the ramifications of their actions? And I, I you know, I really think this first two thirds of the book does such a phenomenal, phenomenal job of establishing these characters and establishing their relationship so that when Voss does turn and when Dooku does break Voss, it is all the more tragic. And when you know where that's going, you can, as you're reading along, you really see all the small ways that Voss is falling to the dark side, all the ways he's letting his anger in, all the ways that Ventress is pushing him towards the dark side, because according to her, that's what you need to kill Dooku. And we'll get into that in a moment. Uh, but it, like I said, it, it really, really holds up on a second reading, and I'm willing to bet it would hold up on a third reading too. And, and, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe a year from now, we'll I'll revisit it again. Uh, but let's let's get into the the story of the novel and the story of the, of these episodes or these would be episodes. And the premise is the Jedi council have, have decided that count Juku is too day. He's, he's too dangerous to be kept alive. <laughs> uh, they should have put that line. In yeah, the they should have. <laughs> Mace should have said that. Yeah. And so they decide to launch a plan to assassinate Juku at the 
suggestion of the aforementioned Mace Windu. So they decide to send Voss on this mission and to have him team up with Ventress. And we'll get to that in a second. But let's just talk about the fact that the Jedi Council are now uh, organizing assassinations. And everybody kind of goes along with it. Even even Yoda goes along with it. And, you know, that's one thing shocking that any of these Jedi would go along with it, but especially Yoda. So we really, this is something that we've kept, we keep coming back to on the show, but we really see the Jedi are losing their way. But what I really like about this book is that, you know, there aren't a lot of characters who are viewpoint characters. We don't get the perspective of a lot of characters. We get Ventress, we get Voss, and we get Obi-Wan. And getting uh, to see this story or portions of this story from Obi-Wan's perspective I thought was really good because I always got the impression throughout the prequels and the Clone Wars that Obi-Wan knows something is off. You know, he even tells Anakin, you know, something's not right here in, in Revenge of the Sith. So he knows something is off, but he can't quite figure out what it is. He knows he can tell the Jedi are losing their way and he knows things are not going well, but he is too caught up in, you know, the Jedi Order, the the politics of war, and, you know, he's just kind of missing it because of the brilliance of Darth Sidious. He's, he's, but he can just kind of tell that something's not right here, and I really got that sense from Obi-Wan in this novel. W- would you agree? Absolutely. Obi-Wan was probably one of the most vociferous critics. Yeah. Um about this idea of assassination because it's important to distinguish the idea of assassinating someone and capturing someone yes. because or or at least uh I, I can't remember exactly how it's worded in the book but at least killing someone in battle mm-hmm. i think there's mm-hmm. there's a bit of a difference there oh yeah uh, if duku's it, if duku's on the battlefield and and you know he faces off with the jedi then you know it's it's war it's you know this that's what war is but if you know they do what they do in the book and they go to his his palace during his uh you know fancy awards gala and they just kind of stab him in the back that's uh that's that's assassination there's there is a an ethical difference there because they didn't give him really a chance to defend himself although I if I do have some qualms with this story, and we'll get to that, it's that they they did kind of give him a fair fight. Yeah, um, that is true. Yeah, and um, yeah, we, we'll definitely come on to that a little bit later. Um, yeah, as you, I mean, also you talk about this idea of I said this idea of killing in battle. It kind of made me think of that line that Anakin said in Revenge of the Sith when he killed Dooku. He was like, I shouldn't have done that. That's yeah. not the Jedi way. Yeah. Now, if Anakin, <laughs> Anakin at that moment is saying that that's not the Jedi way, granted he did chop off his hands and cut off his head, so yeah. it wasn't quite the nicest of killings in the world. <laughs> but, I mean, the nature of assassination, I mean, particularly in, in today's world, I think is often connoted and, and associated with terrorism really mm-hmm. isn't it it's almost a terror act um and uh i, I mean perhaps embodied in say uh 9 when that happened uh, uh and and you know those buildings came tumbling down and, and killed however many people and, and that was seen that obviously was a terror act but that was obviously um at the heart 
of a state which was, wasn't technically at war, but more importantly, it wasn't on the battlefield. And now if we're going to compare that to this novel, as you said, it would be equivalent to what the Night Sisters tried to do in season three when they went to Sereno. Um, that was a Sarge Ventress, Naris and Calf. Night Sisters are trying to assassinate Dooku. It completely backfired, but they tried to kill him in his sleep, basically. Yeah. And, and that's what the Jedi are going to try to do, except they're going to try and do it in broad daylight, it would seem. I mean, to be fair, the Jedi throughout this never really... They never really dictated what uh, or in what manner they were to kill Dooku or in what right. setting they were to kill Dooku. The objective was clear, to assassinate Dooku, but the rest of it, the, 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 the kind of method... Um, and how they were going to do it was left up to Asajj Ventress and Quinlan Voss. And I think that's, but I think that's why they chose Voss for this mission. I think the Jedi Council they didn't like they didn't know how to kill Dooku. Dooku obviously keeps his, you know, his movements pretty well hidden. He doesn't want people to know where he is uh, because that would make him vulnerable. So you know, we see in the novel that you know the Jedi don't know where Dooku is. Dooku, so they sent Voss to team up with Ventress. Partially because she can help him, but also partially because she also knows how to get to find out where Dooku is. You know, she has that informant that she brutally murders in the book. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I, I think when we talk about evolution of, ca- of, of, of a character, um, we do see an evolution, but we also see a kind of consistency with her character. And, yes. And I think that's... Uh, a lot of that is down to um, her time with Count Dooku, and it's, uh, I can't remember exactly how Dave Filoni termed it, but it, if you've been ingrained with with that at such a young age, particularly the dark side, as we see the Quinlan Voss gets consumed with yeah. the dark side later down this novel, it's very, very difficult to kind of wash it off. It's it, it's not It's kind of something which is tainted with you for the rest of your life, and uh, I think Sarge Ventress's character, although she has evolved into perhaps you could argue a far more benevolent character, mm-hmm. still retains those attributes, those dark side qualities. Yeah. Uh, which is why the Jedi have kind of sent Voss with her. Yeah. Because, yeah because she knows what it takes to do an assignment like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, but, but oh, jump in, don't I was just going to say, just going back to the. You know, the fact that the Jedi are involved in an assassination attempt on Dooku, this just goes to show again how the Separatists were able to paint this picture of the Jedi as terrorists, as the villains of this story, where all of a sudden, you know, Lux Bonteri talks about it in season three, I think, you know, where he grew up, the the Jedi were always the good guys, the Jedi were always the heroes, and then all of a sudden... He was being told that the Jedi were responsible for the war, and there has to be evidence to uh, to show this, to convince ge- the general public. And a very public assassination attempt at an awards ceremony for Dooku receiving a humanitarian award, which was a, a nice irony, and I, I do enjoy that Ventress kind of called him out on this. Um, but you know, you know, the winner of the humanitarian award was just assassinated by as i'm sure the separatists would spin it two jedi or was it 
there was an assassination assassination attempt by two Jedi because you know like we like we've discussed in the past the average person doesn't really know the difference between a Jedi and a Sith they're both force using lightsaber wielders um you know the the nuance of the dark side and the light side is probably not something that the average citizen in the republic or the confederate of independent systems knows so the fact that you know two people with lightsabers showed up to kill count dooku uh, just goes to prove to the separatists and the separ- separatist believers that they're right. The Jedi are evil. The Jedi are terrorists. They showed up at our award ceremony to kill our leader. That's not something heroes do. Absolutely. And I think that was a, a nice way to kind of to, to round off how how the Jedi would be tainted and, and, and kind of viewed by the separatists because the, as we have noted before the separatists are not just mindless droids or, or led by the likes of Newt Gunray and Wat Tambor or Poggle the Lesser but he knows that those are the military men knows that those are the council uh, members but the, the people who are actually the proponents of the separatist alliance they believe in its cause and, and, and they believe in the fact that someone like Dooku is a humanitarian and, and, and is trying to win the war to uh, you know from against a, a corrupt republic system, uh, the chancellor being the head of this corrupt system. So, I mean, I, I, going back to to the whole Jedi Council and and the mission of assassination, um, I I have to say that. We talked about Obi Wan Kenobi briefly and his kind of views towards this, and kind of how Anakin, Windu, Yoda, and, and all of those Jedi Council members go on board with the idea. What did you make, Dominic, of the fact that Obi Wan didn't go along with that? And, uh, and you've mentioned that you thought Obi Wan has always felt something was was a little bit off. Mm-hmm. Um, but what did you really learn about his character? at this particular moment in the Clone Wars from this novel. Yeah. You know, where his mindset is, where he is, uh, you know, in terms of his beliefs, etc. Yeah, I think it, it has really it really cemented what I've always believed about Obi Wan in the in the prequels. And I, I love Obi Wan. Obi Wan's one of my favorite characters. But like I said, I've I've always felt that he could kind of tell that things were not right and he couldn't quite figure it out or he didn't know how to act on it and i think this is an example of that where he realizes that what they're doing is wrong that this is you know not only ethically and morally wrong it's it's a bad pr move um and i think he realizes all of that uh and yet he's so a part of this jedi order he's so uh believes in the codes and the rules and the restrictions that they have imposed upon the Jedi. And, you know, who is he? He can't, what does he do? What can he do to fight this? You know, if he goes against the council or he disagrees with the council, well, it's still 11 to one. It's it's not like they needed, I don't know if they needed a unanimous vote or anything. Uh, but if he goes against the council, um, you know, there's, they may kick him out at this point. They may view this as treason. They may, you know, we don't know what the Jedi are, how far down this path the Jedi are willing to go. We saw that they basically rushed to judgment 
on Ahsoka Tano, and that was a huge mistake. And now it's it seems like if they were to, uh, you know, if Obi Wan were to go against them, his his really his options are, you know, vote no and either be overruled and face the consequences, or just do what Dooku did and walk away from the Jedi Order because that's that's one of the great ironies of Count Dooku, right? Is he understood that the Jedi Order was not what it should be, what not what it used to be, and did not stand for the things it claimed to to stand for. And he decided to walk away and he wound up walking right into Darth Sidious. And we saw this this kind of thing happen again with Barris Offi where she didn't uh, she didn't ever actually, I, th- I think, ever actually come in contact with Darth Sidious. We don't know. Um, we assume not because they didn't show us that in the show. And that would have been a great scene if they had have included that. Um, but she walked away from the Jedi and kind of fell into the dark side. She gave into emotions, the, the, you know, the way that that Voss does in this novel uh, is that, you know, it, you know, whenever these characters walk away from the Jedi Order, it always seems like they wind up down the dark path and. I think Obi-Wan sees that, and so he's probably thinking, you know, I, I don't want to go dark. I don't want to wind up being against the Jedi Order. But I also recognize that what they're doing is wrong. So maybe he thinks he can change things from within. Uh, as we know, he doesn't. He fails. And, you know, it's ultimately his apprentice that uh, ruins things for the next 19 years minimum. Uh, and... It's, it's you know, Obi-Wan's always been that character who he has the best intentions, but he just always slightly misses the mark. You know, he wanted he wanted Luke to go in there and kill Darth Vader. He didn't want Luke to go and redeem Anakin Skywalker. And, you know, the irony there is if Luke had killed his father, he would have taken his place at the at the at the Emperor's side. He would have gone dark. But because Luke went there to redeem Anakin, Anakin was able to then kill Darth Sidious and restore balance to the Force. He was able to, you know, Obi Wan always he always know he always knows when things are wrong, and he he's always trying to fix them. But he's always just missing the mark. And you know, for as much as he represents a different way of thinking in the Jedi Order, he also represents the old way. It's almost like. Throughout his whole life, Obi-Wan has, in a way, always been an apprentice to Qui-Gon Jinn. Mm-hmm. He's never quite ascended to that master level in terms of what Qui-Gon was able to amount to. Mm-hmm. I, you remember in episode one, Qui-Gon Jinn would vocally oppose the council. Now, you yeah. can argue that... Someone will probably argue out there and say, well, if Qui-Gon Jinn didn't bring Anakin Skywalker into the Jedi Temple, then none of this would have happened. Well, that's that's an absolute nonsense. Yeah, I, I, Anakin, in my Anakin, opinion, because Anakin it would have wound Anakin, up. It was Palpatine. It was yeah. Plagueis. I mean, Anakin was more of a tool throughout all of this well, Anakin, than anything else. I think even if Qui-Gon hadn't brought him to the temple, I think Anakin would have wound up involved some way, somehow. If it wasn't Qui-Gon, then it would have been... Sidious, it would have been any number of people that would have eventually stumbled upon this kid who is, you know, the chosen one. He is this, um, you know, immaculate conception. He is, you know, he's got more midi chlorians than anybody else. He is, you know, he's, he's 
he would have eventually made his way into uh, galactic affairs and eventually bring balance to the force, whatever that means. I mean, arguably, you can say that Qui-Gon Jinn brought Anakin to the Jedi. Mm -hmm. He brought him to the light side. Yeah. brought him there. And uh, the Jedi were incapable of managing Anakin or um, stopping him from being seduced by Darth Sidious to the dark side. And therein lies a fundamental problem throughout all of this, and that is the Jedi Council. And there's, there's always been something since the Phantom Menace era uh, which hasn't quite, which hasn't been quite right, and has led to the likes of Count Dooku becoming disillusioned with the Jedi Order. And I think going back again to that earlier point of the Jedi Council and, and the Jedi are continually falling, you know, losing their way, as it were. Then, I mean, there are so many instances of it throughout the prequels. I just feel like it's highlighted a lot more in the Clone Wars time mm -hmm. because of the war. The war has had a massive impact on this and has kind of sparked and triggered, arguably ac accelerated the downfall of the Jedi Order. But to finally go back to that Obi-Wan point that you raised earlier, Dominic, what I was trying to say is I feel that Obi-Wan kind of falls from the same tree as Qui-Gon Jinn, but he just doesn't He's still, as I say, kind of the apprentice, so he knows something's wrong. He can recognize it, but he just hasn't quite grasped the, the mastery of uh, what it is that one needs to do to rectify it. And I'm not saying that Qui-Gon Jinn necessarily knew how to rectify it either, but if you see where Qui-Gon Jinn progresses to, i.e., he is the very first Jedi that we've seen in this era um, who was able to live beyond death uh -huh. um, even if it was technically in Voice a, only. You know, invisible format yeah. but he was still there and he was training Yoda for goodness sake so um, that that's in part how I look at it you know Obi-Wan's been trained by someone like Qui-Gon but he just hasn't quite as you say yeah. Donnie hasn't what, what quite you say, got it would you say that Obi-Wan is maybe a little bit narrow minded like by by nature Obi-Wan is somewhat narrow-minded, and yet Qui-Gon's influence on him taught him to recognize when things are not quite right. It's just he never quite mastered uh, the art of, you know, the alternate path. You, you know, Obi-Wan always looks at things as it's, it's this way. You know, the only way to restore peace to the galaxy is through the Jedi, and so I have to support the Jedi in what they're doing, even if that is uh, the assassination of a man or, you know, the only way to restore peace and balance to the force is through the defeat of the Sith. So that means killing the Sith. Luke Skywalker, you need to kill Darth Vader and Emperor Palpatine. He doesn't, you know, look at the possibility of redeeming Anakin Skywalker. Now, Obi-Wan could very, Obi-Wan watched Anakin's fall firsthand he was there on mustafar he saw the darkness in anakin i am fully willing to believe that he did not uh or that by the time of the original trilogy he did not see any possibility for or redemption for anakin the fact that anakin force choked padme he screamed i hate you at at, at obi-wan at him and you know in that fight Ob anakin had but one goal to kill obi-wan to kill someone who he considered a friend a brother a mentor 
And so, you know, in, in the original trilogy, it's very understandable that Obi-Wan wouldn't think redemption is an option. But then Luke does. Luke has a far more Qui-Gon-like mind, I think, that he's looking for the alternate way, the alternate path to the traditional and, you know, to quote Palpatine, narrow dogmatic view of the Jedi. Yeah. And and in a way, that's what the Jedi Council represent. And, mm-hmm. and although <clears throat> this particular story shows that the Jedi are trying to look at an alternative way of resolving the situation at hand, i.e. by assassinating Assassination, Count Dooku, yeah. it's, it's still not right. Yeah. And it's not morally right. It's not ethically right either. And that's what really troubles and concerns Obi-Wan throughout this. Yes, in his mind, we are getting results. But it's kind of a salutary manner, mm-hmm. i.e. Um, one would be getting results, but not necessarily in the right way. And I feel that that throughout the course of particularly the first half of this novel that we're, that we're exploring, or the first two-thirds of this novel, mm-hmm. um, it is certainly highlighted by Obi-Wan's character. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's move on from Obi-Wan. That was a great Obi-Wan discussion, by the way. That, that, that's really, it's really fascinating. He's, he's one of the most fascinating characters in the saga, just the fact that he is in all seven films. I mean, you hear his voice in Force Awakens. You know, Ray, these are your first steps. It's one of my favorite parts. <laughs> as soon as as soon as the you know, the word got out that that was actually Obi Wan, because I remember seeing it the first, the first, uh, well, actually the second time. I really listened to what was going on in that scene, and I heard the "These are your first steps." I'm like, "Ooh, I wonder who that could be." And then, um, you know, saw online it was it was Obi-Wan and that just made that scene infinitely cooler. But you know, he is in all seven movies. He's going to have an impact on all the heroes of the galaxy. So it's fascinating to any, anytime we learn something new about his character is always, uh, always worthwhile, but let's get into, uh, Ventress and Voss and their, uh, their mission to kill Dooku and Ventress tells Voss that killing Dooku will require him to, quote, forsake nearly everything you know that it means to be a Jedi. And basically, she then later implies that Dooku can only be killed through hatred. Now, obviously, Ventress and Voss fail in their mission. But the person who succeeds at killing Dooku is Anakin, who ultimately falls to the dark side in partially because he gives in to his hatred do you agree with that sentiment that Ventress has that the only way to kill Dooku is through hatred, keeping in mind that it was ultimately Anakin who killed Dooku? Because I never read that scene necessarily in Revenge of the Sith as Anakin hated Dooku. I I, I never quite got that. I, I got a real sense of intensity. Maybe he was angry. Um, you know, he tapped into his anger or tapped into the dark side, but I never got a sense of hatred necessarily for Mannequin. What, what do you think? Oh, that scene certainly is open to interpretation. Yeah. I, I listen to what Palpatine says after he says, it is a no concern. He cut off your arm and you wanted revenge. Yeah. Remember what happened, what you told me about your mother and the sand people. 
I, I feel like Anakin is prone to these kind of rage moments. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah, in, little, in that little, moment just, against just, the Sand People, there was sheer <laughs> hatred there. Yeah. But I so much so, whether... so much so that Qui Gon reached out to him, right? Like, yeah. Anakin. Anakin. No. <laughs> I love that. I actually love that part in Attack of the Clones. I really do. That's one of my favorite parts when. Uh, when Yoda is sitting there meditating and he hears, uh, you know, Qui-Gon saying Anakin, Anakin. And then he hears Anakin's shriek. That's that, like, I thought that for whatever issues you may have with the prequels or with attack of the clones, that is an amazing scene. There you go. You've heard it here. First, yeah. <laughs> get back and watch that scene. Just that scene. <laughs> I can see it now. Someone's going to make a new YouTube video of the um, re-edits of the Attack of the Clones, and it's just going to include that just scene that over and, and, and over, and maybe the Yoda and, and Dooku fight. Yoda and Dooku, and then, <laughs> and then that'll probably be it. No, I, I well, I'm saying that from you know uh, perhaps an orthodox Van's viewpoint. I like to think myself as more of a revisionist. So, well, me and you both, and probably most of our generation. But anyway, I'm going way off topic here. The point I was trying to make with that quote was that as illustrated with the Sand People scenario where Anakin slaughtered them all, and I wonder whether Dooku did tap into anything within Anakin's mind when he started almost goading him. He says, you know, you, you, have, you, know, you have hate, you have anger, but you don't use them. And then you kind of do see, like you say, Dominic, this intensity within Anakin. It's difficult to read whether that's hatred or not. But what I would say is that he certainly tapped into the dark side there. Mm -hmm. I feel that as a Jedi, someone like Master Yoda, which is what he learns in the recent arc that we discussed in season yeah. six, um, that fighting it was not the right way and that it was always like a part of you. So in a way... Anakin, has, I think he's let it unleash there for that moment. And that is what has helped him kill Dooku. Because Dooku, as we see in this book, or as we've seen on the Clone Wars, as we read in this book, mm -hmm. he is one of the most skilled jewelers yes. in this area. If, if not, probably in the top three. I mean, he is maybe maybe top five, but he's still <laughs> one of the best. And he knocks oh, Obi-Wan out pretty quickly in every fight, for yeah. goodness sake. So I... I do think that Anakin does tap into the dark side, but would you would you not characterize it as hate? And Dominic, you think it's it's merely anger? It's it's hard to it's hard to say because I, I definitely think he's maybe a, a tapping in to the dark side. It, it's not as clear, I think, in that scene that he's using the dark side as it is. Uh, even I mean, I mean, I've kind of got Force Awakens on the brain, but you know when Rey faces off with Kylo Ren and she's you know, she beats him. That seemed a little bit more hatred fueled intensity than, than this sequence with Anakin and Dooku. And so I, I, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's hatred. Uh, it could be, maybe it is, uh, maybe that's part of it. Uh, but I, I don't know. I, I never quite got hatred. I got anger. I got intensity. Um, you know, a little bit of like, you know, the count is taunting him and so he you know responds with with anger and responds with uh viciousness i also took it that just at that point that anakin was more skilled than dooku that you know after all the showdowns that they had during the clone wars anakin had finally surpassed dooku in skill whether that's 
uh, swordsmanship or, or just mastery of the force or, or what, um, I, I got that impression. I, I never quite got hatred, but how, how I'm willing to believe that, 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 that there was definitely some hatred in there. I mean, you know, Dooku is responsible for a lot of, a lot of pain in Anakin's life. Um, but I don't think he's necessarily, when I think of the moments in Anakin's life that are painful to him, that would make him hate somebody. I think of, you know, the death of his mother, uh, uh, the, the impending death of Padme, uh, as we see in Revenge of the Sith and Ahsoka walking away and, uh, walking away from the Jedi temple. And, and none of those moments really involved Dooku. And so I, I never got the sense that Anakin hated Dooku. I always got this, you know, they are obviously enemies. They obviously don't like each other. But is that hatred? That is... The only fight between Anakin and Dooku that I feel ever comes close to that or at least presents itself in that type of light was the fight in season four in Naboo mm. when he chokes Dooku yeah. physically. That's a good point. Uh, that was the that was the main one. But again, who was there? Palpatine. And what I would say is in the Revenge of the Sith fight, whether I would define it as hatred is difficult, but initially he's not going to kill Dooku like you say. So yeah. he's not fueled by hatred then. But you know, Sidious again is there goading him. And I feel like he almost needs to be pushed. Yeah. And to be honest, that's in a way reflective of this scenario in The Dark Disciple when Quinlan Voss has the opportunity to do it, but he can't bring himself to do it. Why? Because he's still that part of him. There's still that Jedi instinct that's telling him, no, this isn't the right way. And obviously at that point in the novel, Ventress was knocked off the ledge, so she wasn't going to be able to say, do yeah. it, like someone like Sidious could. Well, I, so, I, I got the impression that Voss in this novel, it was almost, he was too tapped into the dark side at that point he was almost arrogant in his uh in his uh, tactic because he had dooku beat like you say but i thought uh, the way i i interpreted it was like he wanted to like savor the moment and uh, because he did you could be right yeah. because he did dooku was able to beat him he was almost you know he had it, it was interesting that it throughout this novel ventress is saying to him you need to top tap into the dark side but you can't go all the way there always has to be that one line that you can't cross and she makes a really interesting comment and i guess i think this is an interesting thing to transition into that the night sisters are balanced they are they you know they don't let the dark side consume them the way the sith do they are they are somehow balanced in the force while still using the dark side i i thought that was interesting I had never really thought about the Night Sisters that way, but we never really we never see the Night Sisters giving in to anger the way that we see Anakin or Dooku doing so. We never see them really tapping into that intensity the way Sidious or Maul does. They do seem to be just a little bit, you know, obviously they're using dark side powers, but they 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 do seem to be almost almost more like dark Jedi than Sith. And that's assuming that Dark Jedi, you know, are somehow balanced. And, you know, I, I think we can tell from people like Krell or Kylo Ren, <laughs> I keep going back to The Force Awakens, uh, that they're not necessarily uh, balanced. But it, I, I, 
did, did, did you get that impression from the Night Sisters that they were balanced? Because that really did sort of make me look back at, at the episodes that we saw with them and kind of go, yeah, that is, that is sort of their way. And if so, you know, ultimately they weren't able to, they, they weren't able to ever succeed at, at their missions, whether that was uh, defeating Grievous's army or killing Dooku in season three. I have to say it's it's interesting. I'm looking at the Night Sisters, and as you say, um, the idea of, of them being representative of balance mm-hmm. in, in the universe was quite an interesting concept. And yet, if that is the case, then again, we have to look to the leadership as we do with the Separatists, as we do with the Republic. And in the same way, the Night Sisters, that we have an individual like Mother Towson who kind of has a personal agenda in all of this. Mm-hmm. And if, if that really is... As the we'll Night be discussing Sisters next purpose, week. Yeah. As we will discuss next week. But if, uh, what I will say is if that is the purpose of the Night Sisters, they are supposed to be so-called the balancers, a bit like the Jedi, yeah. who in a way are being led by the corrupt politician, her <coughs> Sith Lord, yeah. that is Darth Sidious, <laughs> then perhaps we can admire what the Night Sisters try to do a bit more. But it's difficult because... A lot of their activity, a lot of their actions really becomes entwined with the actions of Mother Towson. Mm-hmm. It's really Mother Towson's group, if we want to call it, or syndicate. And once she's gone, it'd be interesting to see whether the Night Sisters ever really returned. And, and if they did return, what would their role and responsibilities be in the galaxy yeah. if there was any in that's, the first place. That's, a, that's a very good point. Now, I, I, I apologize. My, my knowledge of the Night Sisters from Legends is not all that extensive or anywhere near complete. But, you know, the way you're describing them, you know, that they could not necessarily be an evil force does kind of ring a bell with me as, you know, there were some good Night Sisters in Legends. You know, they were they used those same powers, but they used them for good. Now, obviously, Legends is Legends. They're not canon. That doesn't necessarily impact what we're seeing here. But I think you make a good point that, you know, Mother Talzin being the head of this organization, you know, her goals are very much uh, dark side of the force goals. You know, she wants power. She wants to be she wanted to be Sidious's apprentice. She wanted to be next in line to inherit the legacy of the Sith. And he passed her up for Darth Maul and Count and Count Dooku and who knows, maybe somebody else even. Uh, but that happened. And, and, and so she wants revenge, which is again, a very Sith tactic. And so we see those night sisters being very, very much more Sith than Jedi. And ultimately I think, you know, the night sisters are dark side users by their very nature. I think tapping into the force that the way they do, and again, this is my interpretation of Night Sister magic is that it is a, uh, for lack of a better term, perverted use of the force. Like this is not the way most people use the force, and they're they're tapping into it in a way that is very different from anything we've ever seen, and you know, depending on your point of view, perhaps wrong. Uh, and, and so you know that the and that's something that we saw Sidious do in. Uh, the very last episode, the very, very last episode, <laughs> uh, sacrifice. Uh, so it's, it's a dark side power in the way, in the way that they tap into it. But 
you know, if they are balanced, could they use that dark side power for good? And that brings up the whole notion of, is there really a dark side and a light side, or is it just the force and dark side and light side are ways to describe the way you use it. Now, I personally subscribe to that. There is a dark side and a light side. That's not just labels for usage of usages of the force, but it would be interesting to see if there could be a good dark side user and maybe the night sisters at one time could have been and maybe could still be although all of them are dead now i mean ventress dies talzin dies all the other ones died when grievous attacked um but you know maybe some point down the line someone will want to pick up that legacy there's still you know there are still other people on on dothamir we assume and you know the women still reign supreme there uh, you know, the, the, the Knight brothers are still, you know, the second class, uh, citizens. And so maybe, uh, someone will want to inherit the legacy of the Knight sisters, but they'll want to avoid repeating the same mistakes, uh, that Talzin did. And, you know, again, uh, it almost draws some parallels to the first order and what they're doing is, you know, trying to pick up what the empire did, but avoiding their mistakes. Although, uh, Super weapons should be avoided in all fu- <laughs> in all, by, by all future iterations of the Empire, um, or even you know Kylo Ren wanting to inherit his grandfather's legacy. Absolutely, absolutely, and I feel that the um, it will be interesting to see if there is any future appearance of the likes of the Night Sisters and and what their position is, what what mm-hmm. their responsibilities really are and if we do discover that then perhaps some of Ventress's comments can be corroborated or, or perhaps unsubs- unsubstantiated but we shall see it's mm-hmm. um, uh, that that was an interesting moment though and Davmir features quite heavily in the first half of this novel isn't it Dominic yeah yeah they spend, uh, because, spend a lot of time there and uh, obviously that's a major moment in Ventress's past, uh, recent past, and of course, far, far back past, uh, <laughs> lack of a better term there, um, where we see her as a baby given away. So it's almost fitting, therefore, that this kind of blossoming relationship, or rather this this next milestone in Ventress's life story, was to then take place on Daphomir, as yeah. in a way, um, you know, her, her transformation from Sif to Night Sister, or, or argue, you could argue rebirth uh, to a Night Sister, took place at Daphomir, and how the then destruction of her short career as a Night Sister yeah. also took place on Daphomir. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But let's, let's talk about the Ventress-Voss relationship in in this book because that is really the heart of this novel you know the mission is 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 important and, and obi-wan is a as a crucial sub subplot but really the heart of this novel and this story and what really makes it work is the relationship between Voss and ventress a really you know unlikely pairing unlikely duo uh but just uh you know overall uh what do you think of that pairing and, and seeing those two characters interacting together and you know the way their relationship de- developed. 
I thought it was fascinating and I didn't really expect it. Uh, I, I thought there would be hints at perhaps uh, the possibility of a relationship between the two characters, but I never actually thought they would fall in love with each other, which is kind of what happened here. Yeah. And it, it, was, a, it was a slow burn. It was a slow burn. And I think you could tell from very early on when the two characters meet and and there's a lot of banter and obviously Ventress is quite irritated by Voss um, but Voss is putting in the uh, the kind of cheap and cheeky one-liners and and you can kind of tell that yes it's irritating Ventress but at the same time she quite likes it and it kind of starts off in that manner and then it, it starts really developing into a partnership between the two characters and, mm-hmm. and and they really do get very close with each other. And I remember one, I can recall one line, I think it was from chapter seven towards the end of that, when the Moreki, who was, who was the creature that Ventures and Boss were trying to capture at the beginning of the novel, um, was, was eventually captured. Mm-hmm. And she kind of, she accepts Voss as a partner, even though in her mind she says, no, no, I can't, I can't let myself get attached or I don't, you know, this guy's been irritating throughout the whole time. And yet she says yes. And that seemed like that was a unique turning point in Ventress's character mm-hmm. uh, since she's been a bounty hunter. And so it was just a couple of situations akin to that where Ventress was finding herself giving away answers that she wouldn't have done previously. This is someone who she really began to trust, have a lot of faith towards, and she really imparted her life story on Voss. And and at the very end of the novel, when she... Oh, sorry, at the very end of this... This arc. ...particular part of the novel, this arc, (laughs) if you want to call it that, Ventress emotionally breaks down and... And it says in the novel that she's never done that yeah. to anyone, to mm-hmm. anyone, not even Dooku. Even her master, when she closest, broke down, no close, one was there. Closest thing, yeah, closest thing I would say to her breaking down was maybe Talzin at the end of uh, season four. But yeah. even then, I mean, you know, she was on the verge of a breakdown, but, it, you know, this was a complete breakdown, whereas yeah. uh, that was, you know, we didn't well we didn't get to see a complete breakdown at the very least. No. And and in this novel we do, and I think that really demonstrates how close closely attached these characters get to each other because it's it's vice versa. I mm-hmm. mean, we I'm focusing here on the Ventress side, but I'll I'll throw it over to you, Dominic, because there's a lot as well on the Voss side here that this isn't just a one way street. This isn't just Ventress betrothed with Voss. It's actually Voss who falls for Ventress as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think with with Ventress, we see someone who has reached a point in their life where after so much pain and being hurt so many times, you know, she thinks she is, you know, she the only answer is for her to completely shut down and to then have someone like Voss who is the complete opposite to her, who is, you know, he's, you know, he, he puts on this character which I, th- I think is just his character um, of being funny and charming. And, you know, he wants to work with her and, and, you know, I think she finds herself sort of being 
uh, you know, uh, appeal, uh, um, sorry, uh, she finds herself, uh, being attracted to that, you know, the whole idea of op opposites attract, right? Uh, you know, somebody who's so completely different and, and maybe represents what Ventress wish, wishes she could be. And in some ways, you almost get the sense that for a brief moment in the middle of the novel, both of them achieve this bliss that they were seeking and ultimately it gets torn apart. Uh, and, and as for the Voss side, you know, this is where we see both why the Jedi put in the, the um, no attachments rule and, you know, the fa but also the, the failings of, you know, not letting them have these experiences, right? Because Voss, as we talked about, he was a temple kid. He grew up in the temple. He didn't have any experiences that weren't Jedi experiences. And so then he is on this mission where he is in close proximity, you know, all, at all times with Asajj Ventress, someone who he comes to like. Um, and so he becomes attached to her and he basically has to, and he becomes attached to her and he is willing to throw everything away. He's willing to throw his whole Jedi career away. Uh, the same way Anakin was. The same way uh, Obi-Wan claims to have been with Satine. You know, we see this happening. And you can understand the no attachments rule. But by that same token, this is an experience that Voss as an adult should have already had right this is this is the the failing of not of, of not letting these the jedi have this experience you know i think you know they have to live and lose a little bit they have to have this experience to learn about attachments and why it's a problem and he never had this experience he doesn't know the risks all he knows is what he's been told and he wasn't told about all the good things that came with it. So he's not likely to believe anymore in the Jedi way that this attachment is a bad thing. It's the same thing that happens to Anakin, quite frankly. He doesn't believe that this attachment is a bad thing because he's only seeing the good. And then you know, the penny drops and he see all of a sudden everything goes wrong and nobody is there to pick him up. Nobody is there to help him through this. And that's, you know, one of the big failings. I think if Anakin had gone to Obi-Wan with this Padme thing, well, you know, actually, I don't know. I don't know if Obi-Wan would have, what Obi-Wan's reaction would have been. I think Obi-Wan in retrospect in those 19 years on Tatooine probably looks back on his time with Anakin and thinks about all the things he could have done differently. These are the, this is the tragedy of Obi-Wan Kenobi. And one of them would have probably been helping his friend work through this relationship with Padme. And we got a little sense of that in the Clovis arc in season six. And just, and to bring this back to Voss, you know, when things fall apart with Ventress, who's there for him? Count Dooku. The Jedi aren't there for him. He can't turn to his friend, uh, to friend Obi-Wan. He can't turn to Yoda. He can't turn to, to Desh or any of the people. Because he's never had this. This is his first time, you know, experiencing real heartbreak. And because he doesn't have any support system, he falls to the dark side. Same thing with Anakin. 
Uh, and with, well, with Anakin, it's more of a fear of heartbreak than anything. Uh, and, and so I, I think that it just kind of, again, it both represents, you know, it helps us understand a Jedi rule that has always been a bit, um, what always been one of those where you're kind of like, Oh really? Okay. Uh, and, but it also sheds light on another aspect, uh, that the Jedi could have and should have done better with. And hopefully, uh, Luke Skywalker will do better with, um, should Ray ever come up against those sorts of, uh, trials and tribulations as I'm sure she will at some point. The, the whole Voss and uh, the, the Jedi attachment philosophy, I think it was a good case study you brought there of Anakin Skywalker and because it goes to show that Anakin, whilst he is a unique case study, he also isn't a unique case study mm-hmm. because the idea of attachment to a Jedi is forbidden, but then if you don't experience it, then you're not really going to know how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of thrown at you in a theoretical sense, but in a practical sense, it's not as if you can sit down and watch a video or something <laughs> and say, or a hollow net yeah. and say, well, yeah. look, this is what happened to the last Jedi yeah. who got attached well, to th- someone. And I think if I we... mean, it's difficult, surely, because everyone has, particularly humans in the galaxy, have these strong emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, if I think, you know, we, if we look back to someone like Qui-Gon Jinn, if we go back to Qui-Gon for just a second, I think... You know, if Obi-Wan had experienced, you know, when Obi- or actually more accurately, when Obi-Wan experienced his heartbreak with Satine, you can bet that Qui-Gon was there to help him through it. And you can bet that when Qui-Gon experienced heartbreak at some point, Dooku was there to help him through it. It's just a, it's a matter of, you know, the you know, the mentor figure has to help the apprentice through that, you know, loss and i think for too many jedi they are they either they don't get that experience until they're already a master at which point they don't have anybody to turn to or their master just tells them attachment is forbidden attachment is forbidden attachment is forbidden and doesn't really let them go through that experience yeah and i feel like they need to be <sighs> I wouldn't say they need to go through the experience, but it's just hammered in at such a young age that this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And so as soon as a character or a Jedi does uh, begin to grow attached or uh, grow close to someone, then they're always going to be caught in two minds, aren't they? Because they know what they're doing is technically wrong in in terms of the philosophy of the Jedi, but they can't really control their emotions because they're they're feeling this passion, they're feeling this love for someone. And so kind of this this torn nature of the character is obviously going to make it extremely difficult for them to retain the light path because ultimately if they are just uh, torn between this right and wrong uh, idea of, of, being a, of being attached to someone they may well grow to resent that. Mm-hmm. They may well grow to resent the fact that they can't become loved with someone. And that's kind of what happens with Anakin. He has to live a lie in a secret. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to live a secret. He wants it to be out in the open by the time we get to Revenge of the Sith. And well, you know, we all know how that falls apart. But the yeah. point is, 
it's it's something difficult for him to control. And we actually see it throughout the Clone Wars, as you rightly pointed out, Dominic, the whole Obi-Wan Anakin scene in the Clovis arc, where Obi-Wan was there for Anakin. Or he was trying he, to be, yeah. He was trying to be, at least. I mean, Obi-Wan, I guess, can sort of empathize with the Satine situation, but not completely, because he never he never really went into a relationship. There, were, there was an opportunity, and he says at the time of... Uh, when he was apprenticed to Qui-Gon Jinn, that had seen said the word, he would have left the Jedi Temple. Yeah. But obviously that time had passed, that ship had sailed. That was the closest that we know that Obi-Wan has ever got, at least based on canonized content, um, that that was as close as he ever got to kind of leading the Jedi Order and mm-hmm. going down in his own path. So we know that he, whilst we always say Obi-Wan follows the book, at the same time, he always wavers. And I feel like we talked about him at the beginning about how he wavered in terms of this is right, this is wrong, in terms of the moral code. And knowing that really, morally, the Jedi were going down the wrong path is in a similar way that Obi-Wan in a, can, could sort of empathize with Anakin. But he never really, he never really said it, and he never really did it because Anakin never really gave him, I guess, the opportunity to do so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, Anakin, well, I think Anakin had had that idea of no attachment kind of beating him into him. Uh, you know, even in uh, on Geonosis, when he wanted to go back for Padme, you know, Obi-Wan was yelling at him, you know, you will be expelled from the Jedi Order! You know, that idea uh, was, was so beaten into him that... I don't think he would he would even consider admitting it to Obi Wan. Whereas I th- I think again this kind of speaks to the 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 strict nature of the Jedi Order that they uh, they wouldn't even permit you know discussion about it when really this is like we said and as we keep seeing this is something that needs to be talked about. It's an experience that they need to have and it's something that they need to uh, experience to really be functional Jedi. Uh, at le- or at least in certain situations. Uh, but uh, 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 do you have any other points uh, you want to bring up about this episode? Um, in or, terms of this episode, or this novel, <laughs> or this novel, yeah. What is that episode? Well, I said episode. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, there we go. Yeah, we're, we're we're both as bad as each other, then, yeah. aren't we? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I kid, of course. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Should we talk about just the the kind of final scene to to round off? As obviously this will be the the the, the point that we break off yeah. before we go to look at the son of Dathomir arc. But um, in terms of the the moment where Voss and Asajj Ventress reunite after Voss has learnt about uh, his his master Foam's death, which earlier in another Ventress had accredited that death or the slaughter of his master to Count Dooku. Yep. She blamed Count Dooku for his death, but in reality it was her. And of course, Voss found out. Not only did he found, find out from Dooku telling him, but he was thrown, well, he was given, I should say, Master Fulm's lightsaber, and he was, he, he chose, it has to be said, to touch the lightsaber because of his psychometric talents he was able to re 
recollect or he was able to see what had happened and feel what had happened more importantly. Mm-hmm. So with all of that in mind, just to give a bit of context to what we then see uh, or what we then read when Ventress walks into Voss's cell and it says Invisible Fingles, Invisible Fingles strangled her, a liar and a murderer was what was labelled at Ventress. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, yeah. what, what, I just want to see what you made of that whole the whole dynamic there because this was really one of the key milestone points which we could easily describe as being tragic. Oh, yeah. Because we know why Ventress said it, but in reality, look what's happened to Boss. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It, it was one of those things, uh, you know, Ventress's lie there uh, about uh, Master Master Thome. Uh, was something that really stood out on the second reading. Uh, I, I do remember noticing it the first time through and thinking, oh, I wonder if that'll come back. And, you know, on the second go around, you know, you read that and it you know, it makes that moment, you know, tinged with tragedy because you know what's to come. And then just, yeah, their confrontation. You know, we just, we just talked about their relationship and how they, uh, you know, both represented something new and something different and something hopeful in each other's lives. And so to see all that come crashing down because of Count Dooku, it, you know, it, it was, I, you used the word tragic. It, it really was tragic. And I think it shows in the, the final, final scene when Ventress meets Obi-Wan in the bar. And there's this just like, this is just this like sense of gloom and, and doom and, and that sequence. And, and it's, it's a very powerful moment. I I think if this was aired on Cartoon Network or if this was transferred into a visual version, it, it would be hugely impactful. And, oh, yeah. And just imagining it visually in one's mind, particularly in the moment when he force chokes her and then she breaks down in front of him when they have their duel, but she's obviously not wanting to fight him. She wants to bring him back. She wants to bring Voss with her. Uh, and you know that uh, leading up to this moment, that Ventress has kind of foregone everything. She doesn't care now about assassinating Dooku. She almost forgets about the fact she's living a life of a bounty hunter. She gives up all of her credits to get Boba Fett and, and his syndicate's yeah. help. This is it for her. This is make or break. And at the end of that, chapter 25 not only was she unable to retrieve boss but she's now seen that she that the the boss is paired up with dooku and that in a way the person who they were both trying to kill is not only still alive but has taken someone who ventress is completely in love with Mm -hmm. and seduced him and made him his apprentice that oh it doesn't get i'm just saying it now and i can just imagine oh yeah how much that must hurt oh yeah no emotionally and physically and then when she has to go and see obi-wan at the bar although for us it's almost like yes obi-wan in a way is still representative of someone who's good of someone who can provide a remedy for ventress this is in a way not yeah. saying the lowest of the low but she's down on her luck here oh she yeah she did not want to go to see the jedi 
And she's having to now go to Obi-Wan to sit down and tell him what's happened and plea for the Jedi's help. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's, it, it's, this whole novel was a, like a roller coaster of emotion. It really, really was. Um, and, and even if this isn't the end on it, to oh, say chapter 25, that yeah. wasn't a cliffhanger and it should have been because yeah. <laughs> that was a great way to end it. Yeah, yeah, In absolutely. In terms of the, the whole, you know, he is now Dooku's pawn mm-hmm. uh, or pet even. You know, he, he's, from what we saw with Voss at the beginning, where he was so brash, confident, he was valiant and, and a bit maverick. Mm-hmm. He's almost become just some mindless automaton who yeah. is subordinate to the wishes of his of dark Dooku. side master. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's it's tragic. It really, really is. And and yeah, that 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 is why we pick that as sort of you know the moment that seemed the most logical for the cliffhanger for you know the end of the arc. Um, but you you actually you you mentioned one other thing I want to bring up and that was Mr. Fett, Mr. Bob A. Feet. Um Boba Fett. So we see Boba in in this this story and he, you know Ventress pays him to reunite. And so so there's a moment where it's in this scene you were just talking about where the bounty hunters are now fleeing Voss is clearly Dooku's and Ventress doesn't want to go. She doesn't want to leave. And Boba basically takes her hand and drags her away. It's, it's, and she says, you know, why did you, why did you take me? Why didn't you just leave me there? And he says something along the lines of, I'm not you. And so this, uh, this makes me wonder, you know, I mean, is that what does that say about Boba Fett? Because we always took Boba Fett as this cold-hearted assassin, and yet there he is saving Ventress, someone who throughout the novel he has really hated. But because, well, obviously because she tied him up and left him in that crate back in season four, and now he is there saving her. Is he maybe not the cold-hearted killer? we always thought he was because I feel like there's, yeah, obviously I think there's a, there's a missing piece to this uh, Boba Fett story right now. And I think that's that arc that would have featured him and Cad Bane together. And I feel like that would have taken place between this and uh, everything that's uh, between what we last saw the bad batch and this, I feel like that story is missing there. And maybe that explains why Boba considers himself to be different than Ventress. Um, but I'm wondering what you made of that moment, and does that change your uh, your image of that? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I never really, or I, I still don't really feel that I know who Boba Fett really is. I don't. I don't. It's difficult to really glean into who this character represents, what yeah. his motivations are, what his personality is. Because the image of Boba Fett in the original trilogy is a bit of a badass. Of course. But he doesn't really do a lot. And I, I also feel that the scenes he's involved with in the original trilogy, they're not necessarily action set pieces. 
but he's kind of just walking around and and a bit like the fact he's wearing that mask it's almost like it's concealing his real thoughts his emotions we only hear what he has to say and so we apart from the no disintegration sign that's the only little bit we get into oh this guy's a bit of a you know naughty fellow so to speak you know he doesn't sit on the he doesn't sit on the right fence when it comes to morals or ethics but as you say there's something missing here because He's still obviously quite young at this point, and we don't know how far he falls in the footsteps of his father. But all we know is he's the identical, or he's uh, you know an unmodified uh, genetic child of of Django Fett. But I'm just I just wonder whether his philosophy his philosophy may as well be linked to okay, I've been paid to do this job by this person, so it is within my right to make sure that they get back all right. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense. It's almost as though there's some sort of bounty hunter code, which is what I felt with Django Fett, even though I never really saw much of him, and perhaps my leanings are more towards that bounty hunter game that was released on PS2 years back. (laughs) But I, I just wondered whether there's some sort of code there And and the fact that Boba Fett has a gang, because the idea of a gang of bounty hunters, particularly in the era of the Clone Wars, is quite a fascinating concept. Because particularly for the the type of people in that gang, the likes of Bosk, um, you know, someone like Cad Bane works alone. Then, uh, sorry, um, oh, her name's escaping me now. Aura Singh, that's the one. Ah, Aura Singh. Yes, she did work with Boba, but it, there's always just something about Boba Fett where he seems to be in a group of people. However, when we see him in the original trilogy, he's on his own. So maybe there is something that happens in between there. Or or maybe, there, as you say, that arc with Cad Bane could be an interesting one. What do you think? Because yeah. I'm kind of extrapolating a lot of thoughts here, but I can't really put anything down concretely as to what the answer is. Yeah, it's something that I think... We always have this image of Boba Fett as, you know, the cold-blooded killer. You know, he's the the man with no name. And then when we unmasked unmasked him in Attack the Clones, he became more com- complex. And we're finding now that he is more complex. And maybe he isn't as cold-blooded as we once thought. He's ruthless, to be sure. But I, I do think there's a difference between being ruthless and being cold-blooded, being a cold-blooded killer. And... I think we're going to see that distinction played up as we learn more about that character. Hopefully I hope that if we do get a Boba Fett anthology film uh, or more Boba Fett stories in, in other mediums that they don't reduce him to, you know, just a badass who with a cool costume who kills people. I hope that they keep this um, uh, character complexity that George Lucas inserted into the character with attack of the clones and then uh expanded upon with the help of people like uh dave filoni and katie lucas in in the clone wars so i i really hope that this is a this is a sign about the future of that character um that there is more to him than meets the eye so to speak uh also it's also it's worth noting if you watch the uh untold clone wars panel from 
uh, Celebration Anaheim on YouTube, you'll see the clips, the unfinished animation, the story reel stuff from this episode, and you'll see, uh, you know, the the opening chase sequence with Ventress and Voss. Uh, but you'll also see, um, and this is kind of it's kind of breezed over in the novel. Uh, but you'll actually see Boba and Bosk and Embo and Latsrazi and, Hi- uh, and Harbinger uh, actually take down Dooku. You know, it's something that's really kind of glossed over in the novel, and you know, makes sense. We don't, we don't. None of the story is told from the po- point of view of any of the characters involved in that scene. So when one of our characters, in this case Ventress, actually returns in that scene, all of a sudden, you know, it's like, and there was Count Dooku trapped in a net. You know, it's it's kind of surprising. It's not what you expected, um, but. In, if these had been actual episodes, we would have seen that play out. And it's interesting to note that Boba in the animatic was wearing his Mandalorian helmet. And I went over this book um, looking for any reference to Boba Fett's helmet. And never it's never referred to as a Mandalorian helmet. It's just a helmet. So I think they're leaving themselves uh, a little bit of room little wiggle room for how they want to tell the story of Boba getting his armor uh, because it, this could very well be that helmet that he wore in the episode Bounty uh, back in season four uh, but then they could also say it was his Mandalorian helmet but I think they're leaving a little wiggle room uh, for how they want to tell that story if the way they want to tell that story has changed because my understanding was that story would have been told in that Bounty Hunters arc but maybe they're anticipating uh, moving that storyline back in Boba Fett's timeline. Maybe they're going to uh, jettison that story altogether and and tell a completely new story of how Boba got that armor in an anthology film or on a TV show or in a video game or, or whatever. But I, I thought that was just a interesting, fun fact about the novel that Boba is wearing a helmet never referred to as a Mandalorian helmet, even though we see him in his Mandalorian helmet in the story reel for that episode. But with that, I think, uh, I think it's time to transition into our favorite quotes. This is the part of the show where we shine the spotlight on the writing. And in this case, uh, the credit goes to, of course, uh, Christy Golden and Katie Lucas for telling some amazing stories and, and Kate Lucas for, uh, coming up with the stories and, and some of the dialogue and, and Christy Golden for masterfully adapting this story into such a wonderful novel. So I'll throw it to you first, Kieran. Do you have a favorite quote? Yes, I have. And it's actually about a scene which we have not discussed because it's not really been that important in terms of the plot of the story uh, as it's unfolded. But in Chapter 2, there's obviously that little mission that Voss starts off with mm. um, where he's uh, in in this particular merchant store of um, I think what was his name uh, Otor's Hub or something akin something to like that, that yeah. <laughs> and uh, anyway Desh comes in with the new mission and kind of blows it all uh, out of proportion so he has to uh, the Voss who's undercover has to reveal himself and so it comes to the end of uh, Desh and, and Voss activating their lightsabers and decimating whatever they needed to. And Desh then says, so did I ruin the whole mission? He thumbed his lightsaber and with a snap hissed a blade deactivated. And then Voss replied, not the whole mission, 
just a really satisfying wrap up part of it. <laughs> I thought that kind of again, just that that represented Voss before everything happened in his novel. That was him, cheap yeah. laughs, cheap jokes, and we know that from the uh, the Hunt for Zero episode in yeah. season three. And over to you, Dominic. What quotes do you yeah, have? Yeah, I've got a I've got a Voss quote as well, and this is from page one thirty nine, and this uh, really highlights the way uh, um, how well this story translated to a novel and some of the benefits of the novel. And it's when they're getting ready to go to the big uh, dinner event and Voss sees Ventress in her dress for the first time. And so it it's his, it's his, what he says and his thoughts, um, you know, kind of contradicting each other or not, not contradicting each other, but um, in juxtaposition to each other. And so he said, he says, you look, and then he thinks like a goddess of love and war and hope and ecstasy, like a glimmering star that I've somehow been blessed to hold like the rest of my life. And then he finishes nice. He wanted to kick himself. I thought that was just <laughs> so well done. Uh, it was, it, you know, it really highlighted the way this story translated to a novel. Uh, but do you, do you have any others? Yeah, I've got one more. Um, and <laughs> I feel like I chose this one because this is what I'd want to do if I was on a mission. All so right. it said here, um, imagine in my sense that I'm Ventress. Um, <laughs> her bounty had escaped. She was tired, her jaw was on fire, and she'd had to deal with someone who was the single most annoying man she'd ever met. A drink was definitely in order. <laughs> <laughs> is that how you feel at the end of a, at the end of the recording session? You're like, oh, I've just had to just had to deal with Dominic for an hour and a half. I need a drink. <sighs> well, no, mate. I'm not only that. I'm tired. My jaw's on fire. My, uh, uh, yeah. yeah, my computer gets hard hardwired. It's just oh, it's it's, it's, it's <laughs> oh. Every time, Dominic. That's why we have to do this every three weeks. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I kid, of course. <laughs> Dominic, over to you, my friend. All have right. you got any other quotes? Yeah, I've got one more. It's a Yoda quote. It's from page one thirty-six, and it's uh, it. You know, Obi Wan has come to Yoda about you know his concerns that Voss may be slipping to the dark side, and Yoda says, "Sometimes it is a dark path we must tread, so that uh, so that long for the light, long more." Let me start that again. Sometimes it is a dark path we must tread so that long more for the light we shall. I, th- I thought that was very interesting. And, you know, it kind of speaks to Vader almost. You know, he spent all that time on the dark side and then he sees his son and, you know, that's ultimately what turns him back. And so I thought that was a very um, profound quote from Master Yoda. All right, that will wrap things up here for our discussion of the first half, or first two-thirds, I should say, the first arc of the novel Dark Disciple. Before we go, just time for final thoughts and score out of 10 for this arc. And this is uh, is challenging. You have to rate the first two-thirds of a novel. It's not the whole novel. It's just the first two-thirds. So I'll throw it over to you, Kieran. Final thoughts and score out of 10. Well, this is a new experience for me then, having to rate two-thirds of a novel. Yeah. All I will say is that uh, the first two-thirds of this novel were quite incredible, and the fact that there's still so much rich content left in this book 
Uh, I think it speaks volumes as to the, the excellence of this novel, really, and, and the amazing work of Christy Golden, of course, the author of this book. I think that the character moments in this book are probably some of the best in Star Wars period and and I love getting into the mindset of characters it's what has made me love novels akin to Darth Plagueis where you really get into the mindset of Plagueis and Sidious as well as Tarkin when there were character moments between Tarkin and Vader those are the type of moments those are the dynamics that really I just enjoy reading and that came up a lot in this novel particularly between Asajj Ventress and Quinlan Vos and the rich detail of getting into those thoughts and then expressing them out in the open you know, the difference between the dialogue of characters and the mindset of characters which I mentioned at the top of the show is one of the main plus points of this book is one of the biggest um, compliments I can give it really so that and the plot of course the plot was a great plot and uh, I, I don't really want to go too much in, into detail about that because we, we've still got a way to go yet but from what we've seen in the first two thirds it's it's been a very good start so I'm going to give this two thirds a 8.5 out of 10 and that that's how it's going to be so I will throw it over to you Dominic for your final thoughts yeah, I, I like I said, I absolutely adore this novel. I thought it was uh, fantastically written. I thought the stories were fantastic, and and overall, just a, a really, really strong novel and a really interesting way to experience the Clone Wars. And I, I remember saying this to Christy Golden when the novel came out. Uh, but you know, Clone Wars was my favorite show for six years, and this book brought it back for two weeks in a way that really almost nothing else has even for as much as I love the uh, story reels uh, I feel like this book really captured the essence of that series and and uh, and you know it's just such a great story with characters that we have come to to know and love that it I I absolutely like I said I adore this novel it's the best of the new canon uh, far and away the best of the new canon and, and really a wonderful continuation of the Clone Wars legacy. And so I'll give the first two thirds a 9.5 out of 10. 9.5 out of 10 for me. So that will wrap things up. We'll be back in about two weeks time discussing the uh, Maul Son of Dathomir comic series. We'll be discussing all four issues, uh, which you can find collected as... Uh, one trade paperback graphic novel uh, at bookstores, comic shops, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. I don't know wherever you buy comic books. I think Marvel has actually republished those uh, as a trade paperback, so you can find that fairly easily. And I'm sure you can find them digitally, however uh, you find comics digitally. Uh, so uh, be sure to read those. It's a great read. I'm looking forward to discussing that as we see the conclusion of another arc in the clone wars so uh we'll be back to discuss that in the meantime well in the meantime kieran do you want to let the people know what is coming up on expression fm busy busy time for expression fm once again as the term has kick-started and it's not this week but the week after that we have 
something at Exeter University called Refreshers Week, and it's it's basically Freshers Week again. Nice. <laughs> Which is why it's called Refreshers Week. And that means that week is going to be absolutely hectic. It's going to be hell. It's going to be fun, but it's going to be super, super busy because it, it is basically Freshers Week with the exception of having to do work around it rather than actually having a week away from lectures and seminars and stuff. As you know, Dominic, I have a lot of those. So oh, yeah. It's so, obviously uh, so going to take a lot of many. time away from that. <laughs> Not. Um, uh, but we were. We should. We should let people know we were comparing our uh, class schedules before the show, and let's just say I have about three times as much <laughs> in class time. Although I feel like there's a lot more research and uh, and uh, involved in your in your program. Well, I, uh, that's what I'm going to tell you anyway. Yeah. Whether it's true or not, you, you you'll never really know. But that, that's that's. That's good of you to say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so that's coming up. And of course, the big 40th anniversary, which is creeping up ever so fast. I say nice. creeping. I should, I should rather say it's, uh, it's certainly coming at me very fast. That's what's going on here. It's not long to go. Uh, we have the big 40th anniversary event at the end of February this year. And that we were also talking off air, Dominic, about how close celebration is. Oh my and gosh! So yeah. for me, the 40th anniversary is knocking on the door as we speak. So that's coming up. And if you want to get involved, especially if you want to find out how to listen uh, or interact, then you can do by liking our Facebook page. Our Facebook page is called www.facebook.com/expressionfm. Uh, you can also follow us on our Twitter hand. You can also follow us at Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at ExpressionFM. That's Expression with an X. And you can also get involved by visiting our website. So if you go on www.expression.fm, then you can listen to all of our radio content at that website. And you can also find out what's new, what's going on on a daily, probably more likely weekly basis. Maybe fortnightly, who knows? <laughs> uh, point is, if you if you want any updates, then maybe go to the Facebook page. But you can also go on the website. Uh, I'm really selling expression well here. Yeah, either you're doing way, such a good job. Uh, <laughs> yeah, clearly I'm the PR guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that's how you can get involved with expression. I'm going to stop jib- gibbering and jabbering about expression now. I'm going to let Dominic talk about his own podcast other than the Clone Wars Strikes Back. Yeah, yeah. Of course, uh, you also want to check out the Star Wars Underworld podcast. Uh, If you're subscribed to this show on iTunes, then you're subscribed to that show. Uh, We've got loads of content uh, covering reaction and discussion about The Force Awakens. We have our immediate reaction, which we recorded within about 15 minutes of seeing the movie for the first time uh as well as at the you have to stay tuned to the very end for this uh a little bit of in theater reaction so we we brought in the recorder into the theater uh we didn't record anything we didn't do anything illegal but as soon as the movie was over we did a little audio recording uh sharing our just like immediate immediate thoughts after having seen the movie uh so you can check that out we've also got a four hour complete breakdown of the movie that we did a couple days later uh 
with which was a crossover with the Intergalactic Peace Coalition podcast. So that was myself, co-hosts Chris and Ben, and our buddy Zach, uh, who does the Intergalactic Peace Coalition podcast with Ben. Uh, so that was nearly four hours long uh, of just in-depth discussion. Then there's the Boxing Day show where we brought in tons of guests, uh, some of whom you'll recognize, like Kieran, like uh, voice of Grand Moff Tarkin on Star Wars The Clone Wars and Star Wars Rebels, Steven Stanton, as well as some of our other friends, Lillian Sky from Coffee with Kenobi, uh, Randy LaGiudice from MakingStarWars.net's Now This Is Podcasting, our good buddy Irish Chris from the 501st Garrison uh, in Ireland, and uh, also Steel Saunders, comedian Steel Saunders from the Steel Wars podcast, and Frank Rich from Star Wars Autograph News. So uh, that was an amazing show. And then first show of the new year, we're doing, uh, we did a little discussion about the comparisons between uh, The Force Awakens and A New Hope. Is The Force Awakens and A New Hope ripoff? Well, we discussed that on the most recent episode as well as lots of Rogue One talk, a little bit of Episode 8 talk, and uh, we'll be doing lots more Force Awakens talk uh, in the coming weeks, obviously, for obvious reasons. And of course, uh, Star Wars Rebels will, when Star Wars Rebels comes back on January 20th with, uh, with the featuring the debut of Princess Leia on the show, uh, live from Lothal will return, which is our Star Wars Rebels discussion show. And again, that's on the same Star Wars Underworld iTunes feed. So if you want to hear all of that and so much more, you can head over to iTunes, subscribe to the Star Wars Underworld podcast, uh, the SW podcast. I can't remember what it's listed as. Hmm. Uh, and uh, or you can check out the SW podcast recorded live Thursday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern on channel 38. And like I said, while you're at iTunes, if you like any of the shows over there, be sure to leave us a five star review. Uh, we really appreciate all of those. And if you do so, you'll get a shout out on the main Star Wars Underworld podcast. And again, that's three shows on one iTunes feed, three shows for the price of one. And that price is absolutely this is the longest outro ever my goodness we both had so much to say this is what happens when there's the christmas break uh and the force awakens comes out and uh there's all sorts of good stuff uh you can follow the show on social media at tcw strikes back on twitter i'm at dominic j25 on twitter and kieran is at cduggan6 uh facebook if you want to keep a little clone wars in your newsfeed, that is the page to like just search for the clone war strikes back and you can email us clone war strikes back at gmail.com let us know your thoughts on dark disciple son of dathomir any of the clone wars content that we've discussed over the past going on three years now uh we'd love to hear from you guys over there so thank you everybody for listening we'll be back to discuss dark uh, not dark disciple son of dathomir in the not too distant future until then may the force be with you It's a wrap. It's a wrap.